David, thank you for waiting patiently. How are you? Welcome to Outward Unleashed. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to speaking uh, to you about this because we always have we have a fascination with a kind of a morbid fascination with assassinations, especially of very high profile people. These things seem to live forever. I think people will still be talking about John Lennon and JFK and, and people like that long after we're gone, for instance. So I mean, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, what, what is it? You, how do you describe what you do? Uh, I'm a TV producer and writer. Uh, I started at Thames Television. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. I do, uh, I do. <laughs> 1983, long time ago, 40 years. I was very lucky. I got a YTS, would you believe, at Thames Television when I was 17, which is an amazing stroke. Like most people got a paint shop, but I got I got Thames Television, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. So that, education. That, yeah, it just it was. I got one year, and luckily I got kept on, and I I, I stayed in the industry for 40 years, and uh, very very lucky, incredibly lucky. If I didn't get that break. I wouldn't have had the career I've had. Um, and as for this Lennon thing, and when I got into this, it was just a kind of lockdown thing. I, I kind of, it was early 21, uh, spring 21, like everyone else wandering around thinking, what the hell am I going to do here? You know, uh, I, I kind of liked it in a perverse way, even though I didn't agree with lockdown. I kind of liked the fact that I could just park everything and pause for a minute. My missus keep know. my missus keeps saying I really miss lockdown. I'm like she can't yeah. say that out loud. To be, you yeah. know, tell me when we're in the house. Don't say it outside the house. <laughs> yeah, it's not a healthy thing to say. But but I I, I kind of for for a while I liked it. Then then I really didn't like it. But anyway, yeah. I, I kind of um I, I like the fact that I could pause things and just give my brain a rest for a little while. And and I was literally just walking the dog, you know, in a field, listening to a podcast as as men of my age often does. And uh, and I was listening to a podcast about the JFK assassination, which is something that I've always been very interested in since the Oliver Stone film of 1991, which was, a, I suppose, to coin a cliche, a big red pill moment for me when I watched that film. Kevin Costner, um, isn't it? Yeah, Kevin Costner, amazing film. And it just blew my mind. I thought it was just going to be a JFK biography. And then when I uh, saw what unfolded after two and a half hours, I just thought, wow, that's the world is not how I thought it was. Um, so that was a big moment. So I've always been interested in assassination. So when I was listening to this JFK assassination podcast, somebody mentioned the doorman at the Dakota, the, the building where John Lennon lived in New York, um, was potentially a CIA operative. And I just thought, wow. That's uh, that's new. Never heard that before. I literally knew nothing about the John Lennon assassination, apart from what we've been told for 43 years or at that point, 41 years. You know, the guy did it. He, he shot John. He stayed on the scene. The police picked him up. Uh, he then, you know, he went went to didn't go to trial, but he's in jail ever since. We're not allowed to say his name because he's so evil and he wanted the fame. And, and I just kind of parked it. I never really gave it much thought. But in spring 21, when I started to look into this and started to really go deep, uh, I just started to see anomaly after anomaly after anomaly after anomaly. And one thing I noticed early on was a distinct lack of detail about what exactly happened. There's, there's a lot of kind of generalizations. He shot him and he fell down and, and, and the police came. and. But I just thought, where did he shoot him? And where was he in the Dakota? Was he on the street? Was he in the driveway? Was he inside the building? Where was Chapman? Who saw him? So I started to dig deeper and then I, I just got, I just went further and further in. And the further I went in, the more I realized uh, it was nothing like we'd been told. So it, it just became a, I suppose it has to be said, a three-year obsession. 
Well, maybe that's a good place to start in, in what we were told. So, I mean, what what is the official narrative? Here? What's the story we've all been told? Because maybe, um, maybe some people I'm sure that are not actually familiar with the official account. Sure. Okay. So the official story is this. Um, John Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, lived at a big palatial building called the Dakota uh, in New York. That evening of December the 8th, 1980, the fateful evening, they were in a recording studio in New York recording a Yoko Ono song. At 10.50, yeah, I know, uh, of all the that's last the, songs. That's the, that's the biggest tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> of all the last songs he could be working on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, yeah let's, let's gloss over that one quickly. So, so yeah, at 10.50, John and Yoko leave the recording studio, get in a limo, and they drive back to the Dakota, as they normally did. It was a Monday night, December the 8th, 1980, unseasonably warm. Standing outside the Dakota on the sidewalk was a man called Mark Chapman, who is a southern guy. A very mysterious character who we'll go into a little while later, but he was from Hawaii at this point and he was in there a few days. Uh, now, Mark's standing on the sidewalk. Now, what's really important about understanding John Lennon's assassination is when they went into the Dakota, they had to go down a kind of driveway, an arched driveway. At the far end of the driveway on the right was the entrance into their building, and there was a little kind of glass wooden vestibule, kind of like a porch, that they had to go into. Then they had to go up some stairs, six steps, try and imagine this. Then there's some mahogany doors. They go into that. Once they're into that, they're into the lobby. Now into the lobby on the right, you can be buzzed into the apartments in the building. On the left is a desk where the concierge was. Behind that desk is the front office of the concierge. And then behind that desk, behind that office, is another office, the back office, they call it. Okay. So try and, if you can, in your mind's eye, remember that geography. So Yoko and John pull up in a limo. Now, amazingly, it's still up for debate who got out first. But the official narrative is Yoko got out first. Now, Yoko has given some statements where she says John got out first, but we'll get into that later. So Yoko gets out first. She walks past Mark Chapman, heads towards the vestibule at the far right, probably 25, 30 feet away from, from Mark Chapman in the sidewalk. John then gets out of the limo, walks past Mark Chapman, there's a doorman there, by the way, who we'll talk about in a little while. We don't really know what he's doing at this point, but we'll get to him shortly. John carries on walking past Mark Chapman. Mark Chapman then says, he, when John was about 20 feet away from him, and he's, as he's approaching the vestibule door, walking away from Mark Chapman, doesn't look at him, doesn't see him, he's heading towards the door to pull it open and to enter up to the steps. Mark then says he gets a gun out, a .38 charter arms gun, a revolver with five bullets in. And Mark says he shoots John with five shots, steady shots. One, two, three, four, five. So it's, it's not an automatic, it's a chamber. He says four of the bullets, Mark's always said this consistently for 43 years, four of the bullets hit John in the back. One bullet missed. Mark's not quite sure what happened to John after he started firing. He just remembers John wasn't there. Now, the official narrative is that John somehow, with these four bullets in his back, got into the vestibule, opened the vestibule door, walked into this kind of little booth area, walked up some steps, six steps, quite steep steps, walked through some mahogany doors, often shut, but let's be kind and say they were open. He's in the lobby now, he turns left, he goes through a swinging door, which is attached to the desk, the front desk. He's now in the front concierge's office. He tells the concierge he's been shot, I've been shot, he says it apparently twice. I've been shot. I've been shot. John then carries on this journey into the back office and falls down and scatters a lot of tapes everywhere. 
Um, then the official narrative says that the concierge Jay Hastings goes over to John, takes off his tie, prepares to do a tourniquet, slightly pushes John over to the side and sees that he's got a lot of blow on his chest, decides that he's in a really bad way and runs out to, to call uh, an ambulance or, or the police. Yoko at this point, according to the official narrative, has come in directly after John and is screaming, John's been shot, get an ambulance, get an ambulance, someone call a doctor. About two to three minutes after all this happened, the first police officers arrive. One arrests Mark Chapman. One goes in and sees John in the back office, face down like that on a rug. Strangely, it was face down, but we'll get into that in a short while. Uh, he realizes that John's in a really bad way. He comes out to his partner and says, get this guy arrested, get him handcuffed. Two more cops then turn up, Herb Framberger and Tony Palmer. They run into the back office. They see John face down again on a rug. And they say, uh, they sort of realize that, well, according to them, John has had a slight pulse. We'll, we'll get into that. They thought he was slightly alive. Uh, the concierge said he was dead at this point, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with they thought there was a slight pulse. The two police officers then panic, I would say, pick John up and walk him out to a police car, put him in a police car, and the police car drives off to the Roosevelt Hospital. We'll, we'll, we'll get into what happened to John when he got to the Roosevelt Hospital in a short while. Now, the gun, Mark Chapman, after he allegedly shot John Lennon in the back, um, he's not quite sure what happened to his gun. Uh, after, the, um, after the murder, he gave a statement in the 20th Precinct, which is the most important Mark Chapman statement, because it was a statement he gave that was kind of unplugged. It was pure before anyone could get to him and shape what he thought and tell him what he'd done. And he basically said he didn't really remember aiming. He didn't really, he was kind of surprised that the bullets were working. He didn't remember pulling the chamber the tr uh, and he kind of couldn't quite figure out why the gun was at his feet, but he said there was a gun at his feet. What then Chapman said happened was, and this is the official narrative, the doorman at this point, a guy called Jose Padermo walks over to Chapman. He kicks the gun to the back of the driveway over to where the vestibule door was, where John was entering in Yoko. He then uh, tells Mark Chapman to leave a few times, get out of here, get out of here, which is a very strange thing for the doorman to say. The doorman then walks up to the gun, starts walking around and pacing around it. Now, at this point, Mark Chapman decides to get a book out. So in his coat pocket, he's got a copy of Catcher in the Rye. He gets Catcher in the Rye out and he starts to read Catcher in the Rye, takes his coat off, takes his hat off, neatly puts it on the, on the pavement carries on reading his book. So at this point, he's fairly neutral. Um, when Jose told him to run, he's uh, allegedly, Mark said, where would I go? Um, Mark at this point or later said that he couldn't, you know, he just, he, he felt like a film had come out of the reel. He started to look at the the words on the, on the book of Catching the Rye and couldn't quite figure out why they were all going jumbled. It sounded like Mark was having a bit of a brain malfunction. So, the next thing that's quite important to understand is Jose's at the back of the driveway walking around the gun. Is, is this all clear so far, Stephen? Absolutely, yeah. Great. Okay. So, so Jose's around the back. Now, there's three other in, three other people that come into the story. You've got a guy called Joseph Manny, who's a kind of basement crew, part-time doorman, who's down in the basement of the Dakota with a couple of his co-workers. He hears gunshots up in the driveway. He comes up in a lift and comes out of an alcove on the opposite side of the vestibule. So he's on the left-hand side, far end of the driveway. When he comes out into the driveway with his two colleagues, he sees Jose pacing around a gun. Jose kicks in the gun again and says, take this downstairs. So believe it or not, Joseph Manny then says, okay. He picks the gun up, 
gets in the lift with his two co-workers. They all go down to the basement. They put Mark's alleged gun in a drawer. This is the official narrative, by the way. Uh, they then decide to all go back upstairs. And Joe Manny goes into the office to see John, John Lennon and, and the concierge, Jay Hastings and Yoko. And the two co-workers, Victor Cruz and Joe Grezik, that he came up with, go and have an argument with Mark Chapman, which is something that the police said they saw when they first arrived on the scene. So that is the official narrative. Yeah. And am I mistaken? And maybe I'm misremembering here. Uh, didn't they have an encounter with Chapman earlier on in the day? Isn't there like a kind of famous photograph of it or something? Yeah, sort? yeah, there is, there is, there is. Yeah, Chapman was there for a few days, stalking the stalking the place out, and he um, he basically around about sort of five o'clock, John came down to go to the recording studio with with some interview radio crew who were interviewing him earlier in the day. His limo wasn't there, so he's waiting around on the sidewalk. Now, Mark Chapman and a kind of fan slash photographer slash stalker, a guy called Paul Gorish said to Mark, why don't you go and get your album signed, Mark? At this point, Mark goes over, gets his album signed, and Paul Goresh, who was a Beatles memorabilia collector and, and, and an avid Lennon stalker, took the famous picture that made Paul Goresh an awful lot of money of John signing Mark Chapman's autograph. John then got in a cab and, and, and drove off. And that, this, this autograph album was actually found on the scene by a very lucky uh, passerby who, um, who sold it for quite a lot of money. And it's been, I think, sold three times now, and the third person who, who bought it we're talking millions now that that oh, album's wow. gone for. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's probably the most ultimate piece of pop memorabilia. So, so at that is it, sorry, is it, did you say like an autograph book or is it a signed LP? No, it was a signed LP of Double Fantasy, yeah. which is an album that John brought out a couple of weeks earlier. Oh, so, wow. so, so kind of, um, I I bought that because if you read every single book on John Lennon and you read every, if you see every single documentary for the last forty three years, that's roughly what they tell you happened. They don't often show the gun being taken away. They don't often show John running into the conscientious area, but they show Mark shooting him in the driveway. Some people say he was shot on the sidewalk. Some people say he was shot in the driveway, some in the vestibule, some on the stairs. Some even said he was shot in the lobby. The, the terminology often gets confusing, but he had to have been shot in the driveway before he got in the vestibule because obviously Mark couldn't have shot him if he was inside a place that Mark couldn't see. So that that's kind of crucial. Um, so the first real problem that you'll have kind of believing this story is if you look at the forensics on the ground, if, if you Google John Lennon, Dakota driveway, uh, vestibule door, you'll see this vestibule door that John walked into and it's got two bullet holes that are quite low down, two bullet holes. And there's another bullet hole in the, in the far door that you can't really see. So there's three bullet holes there. Now, what's interesting is, John allegedly was shot in his upper back, but these bullet holes are quite low. So these bullet holes shouldn't really be there. So sometimes people say, well, it must have been a bullet passing through John, then went into the vestibule. Some people say John was in the vestibule and then Mark shot him through the glass door and then it somehow hit John. So that's that's a bit of an anomaly. So the first thing I did, Stephen, was I thought I, I need to get to the bottom of the medical because I don't know if you follow JFK, RFK law. But whenever you get into those cases, the medical always tells you the most about what really happened. Uh, you know, testimony from the ground can often be varied and, and people are in shock and time goes by and stories change. So I first spoke to uh, a doctor called Frank Veteran, who said that he treated John. Uh, after about an hour, uh, I got off the phone with him and realised it didn't quite 
scan with me this guy it what he was saying wasn't quite right so i i, I kind of found another doctor called dr halloran uh, who allegedly uh, operated on john and i said to dr halloran because there was a 2016 dramatic film called the lennon report which is all about the hospital drama when john was taken in there because there's been so many conflicting stories about who operated on john there was another doctor called stephen lynn who said that he operated on john but actually stephen lynn didn't do that he came out and spoke to the press afterwards but lynn lied for 30 years that he operated on john and he pumped his heart with his hands Lynn, Lynn was just telling a fantasy and this this happens a lot in this story I've spoken yeah. to everyone involved and, and they just want to embellish themselves and attach themselves to a legend but anyway I got I got to Halloran and the first question I said to Halloran was why wasn't Frank Veteran put in the Lennon report you know why didn't they show him in that film he said well he wasn't there that night so I realized that was a lie so I thought, that's that's a bit spooky that was an early lesson not to believe everybody that I spoke to uh, we spoke about Dr. Lin and how he took the credit for 30 years and Halloran said how much he was annoyed about that because he was Halloran was the guy who was the only surgeon working on John. Lin was in the background just watching. Um, and then I said to Halloran, almost as a kind of casual aside, I said, so tell me, what about some John's back? Was he shot? And he said he wasn't shot in his back. He said he was he was shot in his front. And I thought, well, that's impossible because he was walking away from Mark Chapman. He said, well, where on his front? He said, well, he was shot in a tight grouping with four shots all around his heart. In, I think what he called it actually a tight professional grouping and four went in just above his heart and three came out of his back in a direct line of fire. Now the three coming out of his back in a direct line of fire is really important because that proves if you've got four in the front and three out the back, he was shot in front. You can't, you can't have one stuck in that doesn't go through if it wasn't that way around. So I said to him, you do realize that everyone thinks, including Mark Chapman, by the way, that he shot John in the back. He said, no, he was definitely shot in the front by someone who was standing in front of him. Probably, he would say about two or three feet away from John. Uh, it would have been quite close up. And it was it was a professional kind of thing. He assumed Mark Chapman was a professional shooter. Um, so that really, really troubled me. Um, Can I just, I just to interject there as well? So yeah, what, yeah, please what, do. What, what was the name of this surgeon? I've just forgot his name. Like you said. Uh, David Halloran, Dr. Halloran. Da Dr. Halloran. So he's, yeah. he's obviously contradicting the the official uh story here in terms of where he was shot quite emphatically and obviously oh, yeah. he he would be well aware of the official narrative Is, isn't this something he's brought to light before and said he can't yes yes yeah he did he they, he and two nurses i'm going to talk about in a minute said to the lennon report people you're getting this wrong yeah shot in the front and he i said to him why didn't you make a bigger fuss about this he said well he just said i just thought you know it was a small detail and he, he was he's, he's one of these guys dr hallam very old school hates the word conspiracy hates publicity this is why he stayed in the shadow for 30 years he's very uncomfortable with anybody suggesting there was anything untoward there he just assumed john turned around so we'll get to that point in a minute because john turning around is a very interesting uh, part of the narrative because obviously if john did turn around they can square away how he got shot in the front, but I'll get to that in a moment. So I said to Dr. Hannah and I said, look, can I talk to some other people who can verify what you said? And he said, yeah, of course, talk to the two nurses, Barbara Cameron and Dee Sato. They were there, they assisted me, they took John away and they washed him and they shrouded him. They saw the wounds better than anybody. So I spoke to Barbara and Dee and they both said, yeah, absolutely. Shot in the front, four in the front, three out the back. They were disgusted at the Lennon report that they tried to change history and they argued with the producers often and there's a fantastic quote that barbara said to one of the producers 
they said, she said, why are you doing this? And he said, well, it's because it's in Wikipedia. Wikipedia says he was shot in the back. <laughs> and then she says, well, Wikipedia wasn't in the room that night when we were trying to save him. So, you know, just classic New York nurse. And, and what's really important to understand about Harold and these two nurses is, Stephen, they were professionals. They'd been doing it for a long, long time at that point. These were not rookies. They'd seen a New York in the late 70s, early 80s was a very dangerous place. So they saw gunshot wounds all, yeah, all, all the time, every night, stabs, gunshot wounds. So they were adamant that that was the case. So, David, why is this significant then? Because you could you could imagine, it, you know, he's, he's dead either way. It doesn't matter. What What is it about the actual way he was shot that might imply something interesting? Well, what's interesting is, is when you start getting into Mark Chapman, and you start getting into motives of what, what might have happened if Mark Chapman didn't shoot him. Because you have to kind of figure out that Mark Chapman, if you go with the basis that he's for 43 years, and we have to, because this is, this is the case, has said he shot John in the back and thinks he shot John in the back, even though he doesn't quite remember aiming. He doesn't quite remember what happened to John after he shot him. doesn't quite remember how his gun got in the ground. It's all very vague in Mark's mind. But he's been consistent on that point. So then you think, did John turn around? And... I've got statements from Yoko Ono. I should say I've managed to get the lead detectives notebooks and paperwork. And in there, there's lots of different testimony from Yoko Ono. And one thing she says quite clearly is we heard as we were walking in, we heard noise in the in the street, but we didn't turn around. So that's really important. And Mark Chapman has never said that he called out to John and he turned around. So they're the two witnesses. Mark and Yoko were there. So they would know if John turned around. And there's no reason if Mark called out and John turned around why he would say he did that. Why would he lie about that? So he's never he's never said that because he didn't do it. No one else heard Mark uh, call out to John and John turned around. So John was shot in the front going into the vestibule. So I kind of looked into Mark Chapman. I thought, I need to look into this guy. Who is this guy? You know, and, and Why did he shoot John Lennon? Because, or allegedly shoot John Lennon? Because we keep getting told that he'd shot John Lennon for fame, or he shot John Lennon because he was obsessed with capturing the Rye, or he shot John Lennon because he was obsessed with the Beatles and John Lennon, or he wanted to be John Lennon. And there's so many different, you know, reasons, but it's kind of like, and, and Mark himself on the night of the murder, which is really important, he said, I don't really know why I shot. I, don't, I felt compelled to do it. It was a runaway train, and there was a big part of me that wanted to do it, and a small part that didn't. I was conflicted. But I was kind of compelled to do it. But I've got nothing against John Lennon. I, I, I don't, I've got nothing against his music. I, I don't quite know why I did it, but but I did it. So he's kind of confused. When you look into Mark Chapman's background, I could take Mark Chapman a lot more easy if he was just some loser guy who sat in his bedroom all his life and had some daddy issues or mummy issues and was just like this kind of awkward guy who just kind of snapped one day and just went to the Dakota and was just sick of the world that hated him and he hated the world and he shot John just in a fit of rage. It's nothing like that at all. Mark Chapman had a very rich, interesting life and there's no real reason why Mark Chapman was there. Mark Chapman to this day, I still can't really, can't really figure out, but it's changed a bit actually. It initially started with the capture in the Rhine. He wanted to promote the book. Then people got into his cell and said that no mark it's demons demons made you do it mark and then you've got a little bit of people outside you've got the da's office and you've got the nypd saying he did it for fame you see so that's a, that's a kind of he wanted to be famous and there's this new thing Stephen. well not new it's been around for 40 years where you're not allowed to ever mention mark chapman's name because that's what he wanted he wanted fame so if we never talk about him and never mention his name which is a really clever device because if you actually follow that through you never talk about the murder. You never actually investigate it. And you never realise that John was shot in a way that Mark couldn't achieve. So I started to look into this 
this scenario of Mark thinking he was doing something that he wasn't actually doing. It sounds like he's having some kind of psychotic episode or it sounds like he's under some kind of trance almost. So I looked into his background and, and it, it's, I, we're not going to have time to go through it all here now, Stephen, but the key thing to note is when Mark was 15, he came off a, a, a drug taking LSD lifestyle with some friends, which I'm sure messed up his brain. And he got heavily into religion and he met a character who started to infuse into Mark that he was possessed by demons. And this character was a charismatic preacher who also had a sideline in hypnotism. This is the first time that Mark came across a guy who had hypnotism in his CV. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. And I know Mark spent some time with this guy and I know it messed him up because Mark said it messed him up and his girlfriend at the time had stated this messed Mark up. Then Mark had people around him who were kind of, they shouldn't be around him. There was a friend that Mark had called Dana Reeves, who was a kind of Rambo type cop, who was two or three years older than Mark. He wasn't a Jesus freak. He was kind of, everyone said he was a very menacing, dark character. Now this is the guy that allegedly got Mark his hollow bullets to shoot John Lennon, okay? That's another story for another day. But he shouldn't, a cop shouldn't have been giving Mark Chapman hollow bullets, which Mark said that he was allegedly buying to protect himself from muggers. But we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Mark then went to Hawaii, in 1977, completely out of the blue. And he ends up in a place called Castle Memorial Hospital after he allegedly committed suicide, though he doesn't quite remember how he did it or why, but he, he kind of says, yeah, I think I tried to commit suicide and I ended up in this mental hospital. Castle Memorial Hospital was run by the Seventh-day Adventists who have a history of giving uh, their followers up to the US military as kind of guinea pigs for them being conscientious objectors. So in the Korean War, when they didn't want to go and fight, they said, well, I'll tell you what, our guys don't want to fight because they want to be, you know, soldiers of Christ. But why don't you take some and do some chemical weapons on them and, you know, experiment some of that kind of stuff. So the Adventists had this kind of link with the military. And that link was we are prepared to offer up our followers to further military research. So it's very, it's a very important link that. There was someone at Castle Memorial Hospital who, who accused another doctor, who I know was working on Mark, I've got that verified, of doing some brainwashing hypnotism techniques on Mark. And that was something that happened over many weeks. So Mark is now in a place where there's more hypnotism, there's more psychiatry being done on him, and there's more drugs being involved. Now, what's really interesting about that is when he finished the program, Castle Memorial decided to give Mark a job, a janitor job. So he decided to stay, very conveniently, he stayed on there for three years, uh, which is a great place for them to sort of have him under their control. Then Mark decides, this is hard to believe all this, that he wants to travel the world. So he goes to the credit union or he goes to the union, the, 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 the kind of the Adventist Castle Memorial Accounts Department and says, look, can you give me a loan? I want to travel the world. And he literally did travel the whole world. He went everywhere, Asia, Europe, you name it, Mark went there, every single country you could imagine. And they went, yeah, sure, Mark, you're only a janitor, but yeah, here's, here's a lot of money. You go and fly around the world and have a great time. We're not quite sure what Mark did there. We know he ended up in, uh, in a United Nations meeting in Switzerland. We've got a few things that he shouldn't be doing that he was doing. We think that's could, could it have been missionary work with his close links? It could have been missionary, but it wasn't classified as missionary. It was always just something that Mark said he just felt compelled to do. And Mark went off and did it solo. Yet yeah, there's a lot of photos of Mark doing this. So when, when Mark came back, he got married to a local woman called Gloria. And uh, from that point onwards, Mark felt compelled to you know, start to feel that he was obsessed with capturing the rye. Now this happened, this capturing the rye obsession happened, Stephen, 
around about August 1980. Okay, totally out of the blue. He never really was obsessed with that book before. Many people try to claim that as a child, he was always into it. Not true. I've spoken to all his childhood friends. He wasn't into Catching the Rye. But August 1980, he gets really into it. And he also gets really into John Lennon. And he starts to fuse the two together. Now, we know he was talking to lots of hypnotists at the time because some of them actually came out and said, yeah, I was I was dealing with Mark at the time and we were dealing in hypnotism. But what's interesting is two things were happening, Stephen, in 19, August 1980. One was John Lennon was back in the recording studio. So he was getting active again and he was going to be national scene after five years of being a house husband. He just had a, a, his second son. So John was now suddenly raising his head above the parapet. Second thing happened was Ronald Reagan was now a shoo-in to win the election in November, which he did. Okay, so you've got Reagan coming into power and you've got Lennon back in the studio. Now we need to think a little bit about what Lennon was and what he meant to one of Reagan's pals, the last Republican president, uh, Richard Nixon. They were really um, big enemies, those two. Lennon was made it his mission to constantly berate Richard Nixon. And obviously he was, was an anti-Vietnam war guy. Lennon was constantly uh, going on, on concerts. Uh, the FBI were constantly trading him because these concerts were for mainly sort of right, uh, left-wing socialist causes. So Nixon hated Lennon and the feeling was mutual. And the FBI trailed Lennon. Uh, and these, this is documented with release files now. He was on their radar from when he first moved to America in 71 to the day he died. The, the FBI were monitoring him. And we know Nixon couldn't stand the guy. So you, you kind of got Nixon after Watergate and his, his kind of fall from grace, you've got Reagan coming in. So, and we know these two spoke to each other. There's also, as I'll reveal in my book, there is a link to somebody who knew Nixon and he knew people who knew Mark. There's a, there's a Mark Chapman group that is co deeply connected to Richard Nixon. And I think what was happening here was, I think they thought that if Lennon was gone before Ronald Reagan got in, a very prominent critic of what Reagan got up to in Central America and various other places around the world would be erased. Now, this is, I'm, I'm throwing so much at you here, Stephen. So please, please tell me to pause if, if you want to. But It's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I suppose I just yeah. want to pick up on one quick point. Yeah, we'll, please we'll, do. We'll definitely pick that up. This, this idea, I mean, it feels like the implication here is that a little bit, perhaps that he was either brainwashed or hypnotized into doing something. And for somebody like me, I, I don't, I don't tend to believe hypnotism is actually a, a thing maybe i'm naive here or it, uh, certainly maybe the power of suggestion i, I appreciate it's a thing but mm. this idea mm. that you could you know incantation and put someone in such a, a, a mental state that you can command them to do things is this actually okay. a thing that you believe exists in reality yeah have you, have you heard of mk ultra i have yeah i mean mk ultra for, for your listeners or viewers who haven't heard what it was it was a cia program that was also run by navy intelligence it came out of the second world war it was run by a lot of people who came in from Nazi Germany in Operation Paperclip. So it was run by a very a lot of nasty people. It had lots of different offshoots, but the main point of it was was to try and use tr was to try and use what was coming out of Korea and the Cold War to, to try and get uh, kind of spy techniques to to break people and to get them to open up about interrogation. But it was also used very much, and this is you know we've got official documentation that this existed. It was used to try and create a Manchurian candidate, and they did this through. Through psychosis, through psychological breaking down, through hypnosis, and through drugs, you need the three things going on, and it, often it worked to the point where we, we know there was a lot of um, uh, speculation from the the um, Navy intelligence that actually the, these sleeper agents were all over the world ready to go. But when the CIA were exposed in '75 at the Church Committee after Watergate, 
they, they sort of said, yeah, it's all over now. Yeah, we're, we're done with that brainwashing stuff. Yeah, we, we, we're done with that Manchurian candidate thing. We wash our hands with it. CIA will never do it again. We've been very naughty. We've, we've, we've experimented on a lot of people and they didn't realise we were experimenting on them. Please forgive us. Uh, well, we'll surely we if the CIA says something, then we should take them at their word. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But what, 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 what wasn't brought up to book at the time was the Navy intelligence part of it. And the Navy intelligence have always said, and we know from documentation, that they were deeply involved in MKUltra. Now, the main guy that was involved in, this is going to blow your mind, the main guy that was involved in the Manchurian candidate part of MKUltra, i.e. the part where you actually you train someone up to be a hypnotized assassin, was a guy called Milton Klein. Now we know this because in 1979, Milton Klein went on a documentary. You can see this on, on my YouTube channel. And he bragged about being a CIA consultant on the MK Ultra program. And he bragged about the fact that within three to six months, he could create a Manchurian candidate to commit, to commit murder, okay? So Milton Klein's a very dark, nefarious character. Now here's where it gets incredible. When Mark Chapman was arrested and he's in his prison cell trying to figure out why he's done what he thought he kind of thought he did but he wasn't quite sure the lawyer that was representing him was a lawyer called herbert adlerberg who was a public lawyer who was just next on the list after three days herbert got so many death threats he decided that he wanted to get out of there so a new lawyer came in we're not quite sure if this new lawyer jonathan marks was a private or a public lawyer but we do know he was representing mark chapman now someone who worked with chapman's defense lawyer was a guy called david suggs who worked for a company called Donovan Newton Leisure and Irving, or might be Irving and Leisure, always get that a bit wrong. Anyway, it was a law firm in New York, and it was the CIA's law firm that was actually set up by Wild Bill Donovan, the actual guy, the founder of the CIA. And this law firm was awash with CIA agents. And what Jonathan Marks decided to do was, after literally a week of Mark Chapman being in prison, Jonathan Marks decides that he wants to send in Milton Klein to hypnotize Mark to see why he committed this alleged murder on John Lennon. Can you believe Milton Klein strolls into Mark Chapman's cell, unmonitored, could close the door, had him all to himself for many, many weeks. Not only Milton Klein, you've got another psychiatrist slash hypnotist, a guy called Bernard Diamond, who also had a lot of connections to intelligence agencies, who was in Siran Siran's cell, the guy who allegedly killed RFK, Bernard Diamond goes into Mark's cell and shuts the door. So now you're thinking to yourself, why are these people in Mark Chapman's cell? Why would the defense put these nefarious characters into Mark Chapman's cell? And there may have been a completely innocence on Jonathan Marks's part. He may have just been suggested this guy could be good. He puts him in there. He doesn't know what he's getting up to. But we do know what he got up to because a journalist called Jim Gaines did an article on Mark Chapman in 1987. And he said that Milton Klein spoke to Mark Chapman about Mark's little people, okay? And Mark had this kingdom that Klein wanted to talk to him about where there was all this kind of government and armies and generals. And Mark was this omnipotent kind of God-like figure over these little people in his imagination, you see. Very strange, but okay, fair enough. Maybe it was true. No one has ever said that Mark thought about these little people in his earlier life. This just came from these Milton Klein discussions. When, after six months of them trying to get a temporary insanity plea for Mark, they, uh, they were ready to go to trial, literally a week before they were ready to go to trial, Mark rings up his lawyer, Jonathan Marks, and allegedly says, I want to plead guilty. I don't want to go to trial. I don't want all the forensics and all the dodgy medical, this is not what he said, but this is the problem. All that forensic stuff, all the medical stuff, 
none of that came out in court. So, or would, would it come out in court? Because Mark pled guilty. So I want to plead guilty. And Jonathan Mark said, why are you pleading guilty, Mark? And he said, the reason I'm pleading guilty is uh, God told me to do so. So, okay, okay, God, that's a strange reason, Mark. He said, yeah, yeah, God's told me to plead guilty. So I want to be banged up forever. No trial. That's, that's the end of it. So that was the kind of official story. But what I found out is, Stephen, is the actual reason why Mark decided to plead guilty was because we found out from his appeal lawyer this is what happened. Mark went and rang up Jonathan Marks and said, last night, my little people kingdom had a big battle on my cell floor. And God's army and the devil's army had this battle. And there was the devil's little people and there was God's little people. And the, de- and the God's little people defeated the devil's little people. And what was great about that was the God's general, the little general, got up in the palm of my hand, Mark said, and he whispered in my ear, plead guilty, plead guilty, don't go to trial. So basically, the little people kingdom concept that Milton Klein had implanted into Mark Chapman's brain was used to make Mark Chapman believe that God's general on the little people's forces, this imaginary thing that Milton Klein must have put into his brain, was what was asking Mark to plead guilty to John Lennon's murder and not go to trial. And all of the nefarious forensic medical conflicting witness statements that have come out in this story since were all buried forever. There's a lot going on there for sure. And I I, I suppose... I mean, just to bring it back to maybe John Lennon as a, as an influential person, how much sure. can we put into the fact? I mean, I, I would I would readily accept that he probably became a thorn in the side of uh, Nixon. Perhaps sure. he would have had some very uh, you know deep feelings towards him. But in in, in terms of I think where this is the implication is that he was sort of taken on the board to assure you know ensure a, a smooth transition to the the Reagan administration i just want to get a, mm. your feeling on how influential was john lennon then i mean could he have potentially altered the course of american history in terms of election cycles i think he could i think what people don't understand now because there's been a kind of there's been a there's been a campaign almost to demean john lennon as this kind of woman beater drug user kind of hypocrite Hmm. And all the kind of the Beatles stuff's kind of been pushed to one side. But what, what John really was about was, was his anti-war stuff. And, and, you know, people forget that that Give Peace a Chance and those, those peace beddings that he did with Yoko were very, very influential at the time. And John could get out a rally of thousands of young people at a drop of a hat. And he, and he often did in the early 70s. He did, for sure, by 75, he'd stopped doing that. But people like Nixon hadn't forgotten how powerful John was. And it was believed that John could swing an election, no question about it, especially if it was a close election. And I think someone like Reagan's people would have looked at, or certainly not Reagan's people, I can't accuse Reagan's people, but people who would want Reagan to do well, who want the new conservative project to go on into the Bush era and into, you know, post 9-11, which it did. You know, they had they had their kind of plans already by you know, 1980 onwards. And they, you know, let's face it, they're in there for 12 years, not just, not just four, not just eight. They got in there for 12 once Bush got in. So it was a long-term project. And I don't think they wanted it to end after four years. But I think they probably knew what they were going to do with Iran-Contra. I think they probably knew what they're going to do in Central America. And I think they probably thought, you know what? This guy could easily get out there and start. Now he's back in the studio and he's talking. He was going to go to a rally in January in San Francisco for uh, for Asian workers. So John was ready to get active again. 
That that's and he was also going to be officially going to have his green card stamped in January, and he could never be deported. That's another very important point. So so John getting John out in December was a very very convenient thing for the Reagan administration because a fierce critic of their future plans was taken out at a stroke. And um, you know you can't get away from the fact that Hinckley took out or tried to take out Reagan with Bush lurking in the background. And some people and I I put some credence in this think that maybe. What Mark Chapman was doing with, with John Lennon was a kind of it was a kind of it, it was a win-win because not only did you get John Lennon taken out, but you could actually see if this Manchurian candidate technology actually works. And I would say that Mark Chapman wasn't a program Manchurian candidate to actually assassinate John. He wasn't a program assassin. I think he was a program patsy, and I think he was there to think he was doing something he wasn't doing. I think he was there to take the can, but I think I don't actually think he was meant to live i think he was meant to be taken out i think he was meant to run and i think a la lee harvey oswald i think he was going to be taken out so there wasn't going to be a problem further down the line but mark didn't run even though the doorman pleaded with him many times to run away and i think the second that mark didn't run he was a problem it was a problem that had to be fixed and the people not just milton klein my book will reveal that there were other people that were desperate to get into mark chapman's cell and influence him and, and ask him, do you remember what you did, Mark? Do you know why you did it? Can you can you think of the reasons? They were trying to assess how much he remembered and, and why he thought he allegedly killed John Lennon. And, it was, and what they did to him in his cell, not just Milton Klein and Bernadine, but other people, it is very revealing, I think, to who was behind programming Mark Chapman to stand there and think he was doing something that we know from medical evidence he couldn't really do. And I should just finish one point here. When I spoke to the lead detective, Ron Hoffman, who's in his 80s now, and he gave me all his paperwork, and they're very revealing all those interviews. I said to Ron, I said, Ron, where was, where, where was almost at the end of our interviews, I said, where was John Lennon shot, Ron? You, you know, where, whereabouts in the driveway? He said he was shot on the stairway in, inside the vestibule. Uh, oh, yeah, 100%. That's where he was shot. But, and I didn't sort of say to Ron, Actually, Chapman couldn't even see that area, never alone shoot John in it. Because we know where Chapman was standing because witnesses saw Chapman standing on the sidewalk before and after the shooting. So I, I kind of, at that point, I thought, well, you've kind of given the game away there, Ron. But you're so old and you've forgotten so much that you don't realise that where you've actually said John Lennon was shot. And you can see this on my YouTube channel, Assassination of Lennon. The actual clip of Ron saying this outside the hospital when John has just been declared dead is visible. There's some news rushes I've found where Ron actually says it. Yeah, he was shot inside the vestibule. Mark Chapman could not shoot John Lennon inside the vestibule. So what I think happened was, just to finish off, Stephen, I'm sorry, I know I'm rambling here, but I'm no, desperate it's great. to get... It's great. <laughs> I'm desperate to get so much in. I think Mark Chapman was programmed to shoot blanks. I think he was programmed to shoot blanks from when John was very near the vestibule. I think when John heard gunfire, he ran into the vestibule. I believe a second shooter was in the vestibule shooting John four times straight at him above his heart in a tight professional grouping. I believe John collapsed on the stairs. I believe there's a lot of questions to ask, Stephen, about how John, regardless of whether Mark Chapman caused the injuries or whether the second shooter caused the injuries, is how John's body ended up in the back office. Because to get there, as I said, he had to go upstairs into a lobby, turn left through some swinging doors, through one office at the front and then into a back office and collapsed down flat on his face. I've spoken to all the medical people who treated him, the nurses and the doctors, and even the chief medical examiner who did the autopsies, a very strange man who's been accused of falsifying autopsies. That's a story for another day. Even he said he agreed with the nurses and doctors. He said when John was shot with those wounds, because his subclavian left artery was completely blown away, he said he would have dropped and died 
instantly. But the problem, okay. the problem is, Stephen, he was found a long way away from where he was shot. Right. So I suppose as well, <laughs> if, if we're talking about a sort of very top secret mind control military project, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would it not be an astronomical risk to then employ that in the direction of one of the most famous, if not the most famous musician on the planet, which his death and assassination obviously and uh, predictably brought global attention on his murder was is that not just a massive risk from the intelligence services that's a good question i I think if you go back to 12 years earlier with siran siran and rfk it's a very similar operation that worked almost exactly the same you've got a you've got a manchurian candidate shooting at rfk thinking he's well he doesn't actually remember what he did he can't remember how why he was there and why he did it but what you've got from the autopsy reports and from the people that were there on the scene is they know for a fact that rfk was shot from behind just from behind his ear uh so there's no way that siren siren could have actually caused the fatal shot that hit rfk so i believe this was an operation that had been in in place before um there are other um mk ultra assassin type suspicious uh, murders from 1968 to 1980. But I think with John, I think it was more of a case of a dry run. You know, as I said, it was a win-win. I think you take out a fierce critic of of Ronald Reagan, but you also see if this Manchurian Patsy program will work for our our job on on Ronald Reagan, because I think the the person who really wanted to get in power and run the country was George Bush. He was Reagan's running mate, obviously, at the time when that that, that failed assassin happened with John Hinckley. And of course, you know, he, uh, Ronald Ray, uh, George, George Bush Sr. came, obviously he was a CIA, CIA director three years earlier in 1977. So he would have known all about these technologies that were around, that were exposed in the church committee reports. So if, if you join it all up together, I, I think it was a kind of, let's see if this works. Let's see if this, uh, if this can be pulled off. And if, if we take out a fierce critic of Ronald Reagan. But also there's another factor that my book will reveal, um, Stephen, is it doesn't just have to be a political, logical decision. I think a lot of people that were involved in it actually disliked John just for it, for his for his opinions on other things. Because remember, John was anti-religion, he was anti-war, and he was anti-capitalism. And there's the people that I believe put this together were would have hated him for those three things. And those all those three things were very important. And I believe it was a siloed operation. I believe the people that got Mark Chapman to stand there as a Manchurian Patsy was one group. I believe the people who actually did the shooting and the cleanup on site was another group. I believe the people who influenced the, the police detectives and the NYPD not to do an investigation because they did not do an investigation. That I can reveal. I've seen all their notebooks and their paperwork. Basically the next day, Stephen, the blood was mopped up. John's blood was mopped up. And people were walking in and out of the Dakota like everything was normal. There, there was no men in white suits. There was no, so there was no fingerprints. There was no forensics. The guy said he did it. They had him on site. It was, it's what they call a grounder. Um, so there was no proper investigation for John, and there does need to be one because I think just with the medical evidence alone, Stephen, it, it points to the fact that there was something very strange and nefarious going on that night. And it's, it's one of the most misunderstood missold famous murders of all time because most people say to me oh well yoko must have seen it or the doorman must have seen it well what's interesting about yoko and the doorman is the doorman statement has never been released to the public we don't know why for some reason they decided to keep that one secret and yoko ono amazingly has never said and she's had 43 years to do it that she saw mark chapman shoot her husband 
So there is no real witness, living witness, who can say they saw Mark Chapman's bullets hit John Lennon. That person doesn't exist. But everyone thinks those two people must have seen it or other people who came later who said they saw it must have seen it. But it was a very small group of people that were there that night, Stephen, and none of their testimony matches up to what we know. Can I get the CCTV? I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. No CCTV. But, I wish there was. I wish there was. Stephen. Yeah, that yeah, this no would be a much, a much shorter book, wouldn't it? So we're we're aware yeah. that you've you've got a book detailing this. There's also a documentary as well that you that's going to be released later on this year. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, the book the book's coming out this year. It's called Mind Games: The Assassination of John Lennon. The documentary will be coming out sometime next year. I believe there's an Apple uh, documentary coming out. Uh, this year as well, where a lot of the people I talk about in my book will be on camera talking, I think, for the first time. So that'll be interesting for people to see. I think you should all look out for that. Um, if you want to see a lot of this footage that I'm talking about and a lot of these images, Stephen, the assassination of Lennon, it's my Instagram, it's my YouTube, and it's my TikTok, assassination of Lennon. Please go there and please look at the video. There's a lot of video evidence that's out there that's been sort of collated when people haven't really understood what they were saying when they were giving stuff away. So you can find those clips on there. If you go to my Substack, davidwheeland.substack.com, I put countless articles on there about a lot of stuff I've been, I've been digging up for these last three years. And you know, come and follow me on Twitter uh, at Lennon Murder. I'd love to. Um, I'll answer anyone's questions, Stephen. I've, I've been doing a lot of these podcasts now, and some of them go on for sort of two and a half, sometimes three hours, and we still don't touch all the <laughs> elements of it. There's, there's a, there's, it's, it's a very big operation, and um, it was very carefully managed afterwards especially from a media perspective so people have been given a lot of false information about it and um my mission is to get the truth out there because what's ironic is john lennon was obsessed with the truth he's just often sing songs about truth and his murder is just a tissue of lies and it's, it's been sold incorrectly it, and people need to understand what really happened that night was you a was you a fan of Led, Len, uh, john lennon the man and his music not really, no. No, it was, it was just kind of, I was more interested in the case and in the anomalies. I mean, I, obviously everyone likes the Beatles, uh, but I was more of a kind of Prince and Bowie man in the 80s. I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't a massive, because uh, obviously Lennon in the 80s, the Beatles were long gone. And, and, you know, the stuff he did in the 70s, you know, it's a bit sugary, isn't it? It's a bit too, you know. It's, I've, it's got, not... uh, I've got Worries Over on an old 45 in my attic i'm wondering if that's probably not worth anything is it well it might be yeah it might be i mean that 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 single was you know it was people forget you know john in this day and age where we got war raging everywhere and and everybody kind of not talking about peace you know john did he was out there putting himself out on the line saying you know vietnam was wrong war is wrong can we talk peace please can we you know do we have to keep talking war and we could do with him today there's no doubt about that what 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 do you think he'd make of the fact that every time there's a terror attack or a tragedy imagine the song imagine gets wheeled out or or the the way gal gadot and and co murdered it during lockdown it's just you know i think he would have been horrified to be honest because it's just it's just so twee and so incorrect and just it's the wrong response you know he knew what he was doing with that song i think what's very clever about john is he was a genius no question and he often put messages in in sugary coated pop and if you actually dug down a little bit deeper you could see that there was a lot more going on there i mean but i think john's big problem and i've spoken to a lot of people who knew him in the beatles days and beyond and a lot spoke a lot of people who actually worked with him in the dakota right up to his death the key word that keeps coming out Stephen, is is reckless yeah he's, he's a really reckless guy who lived a kind of reckless life and um he was the rebel, I think, that everybody painted him as. And in the end, he paid the price for that. 
I mean, there's, you know, hopefully we can talk again and we'll talk about the bodyguard situation and we'll talk about all the stuff about the doorman. It's, it's, a, it's a labyrinth case. It seems really simple. You know, when you think about JFK that was done in Dealey Plaza with hundreds of witnesses and it's all very complicated, the Lennon thing should be simple. He's walking into a very small driveway. There's John and Yoko. There's Mark and the doorman. There's a concierge who sees the aftermath. There's a lift operator who takes the gun away. End of story. But actually, none of their stories match up. None of them. Was there any, I mean, in terms of Yoko and her account, is this something mm. she still speaks about or she kind of drawn a line under it? Were, were, did you make any attempts to reach out to her and see if she Yeah, yeah, Yoko, we have. We, I did approach her, her lawyers and, and she never wants to talk about the murder. If you ever watch a Yoko, there's been two or three. Uh, the Night John Lennon Died is one that the BBC did about 10 years ago. Whenever Yoko talks about the murder, she talks about uh, being in the recording studio. She talks about getting the limo. She talks about getting out of the limo and then she just goes, I'm paraphrasing here, it was terrible or it was bad or I don't want to talk about it. So when you, when you get into the detail about what really happened, Yoko, she can't say. Now, I've got five witness statements that I got from Ron Hoffman's notebooks that he took and other people took in the NYPD of, of, from Yoko Ono on the night of the murder and in the days afterwards. And disturbingly, every single statement is different. Sometimes she's in front, sometimes he's in front. Sometimes they swap places. Sometimes she runs in quickly, sometimes she doesn't run in. Sometimes John said he was shot, sometimes he doesn't say he was shot. Sometimes he was shot inside the glass door, sometimes he wasn't. It's, it's almost like, uh it's almost like she's kind of i mean listen there could be ptsd here it was an awful That's what event, I'm i mean yeah. do you think there's an implication yeah. of complicity here or is this just a perfectly normal trauma response a, a lot a lot of people say obviously yeah, i'm sure you've heard this that you know she's I, I, surprising how many people in the beatles world don't like her uh and don't want to put me go on the record about that um and a lot of people at the dakota were not too keen either but they've all had legal problems with her so that's probably clouding their judgment um she was by all accounts a fairly Mary Widow. Uh, but again, you're taking accounts of people who didn't like her and had legal problems with her. She had a lot to gain. Let's face it. When she, when she lost John, she became very rich and she moved her boyfriend in. Boyfriend, he was probably gay, so it probably wasn't her boyfriend. But she moved a guy in called Sam Havertoy probably about a week later into the Dakota, which a lot of people thought was a sign that she was behind it. There's no proof she was behind it. I, I, I wish she gave a proper statement. And I'm very disturbed that she hasn't given a proper statement. But what, what I will say about Yoko, and the reason I don't think on probability she's behind anything nefarious is she easily could have said, Stephen, if you think about it, yeah, I turned around and I saw Mark Chapman shoot my husband. Right? Such an easy thing for her to say. She was there. Chapman is allegedly shooting John. But in 43 years, she's never said that. So she's being honest about that. But if she was nefariously involved, Surely that's something she could just throw in there. No one would doubt her. Everyone would go, well, Yoko said she saw it. Yeah. So so I think that's probably her best. Uh, for me, that's the thing that mostly goes in her favour. But there are other problems with Yoko. Which One is... quick point as well, uh, Ayad. We really don't want to We don't want to turn this into the Yoko show, do we? It's no, no, no. It always tends to go fault. that way. Like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> She's fascinating. She is, for sure. As far away from a microphone as you can get her. Um, so... In terms of the, the the bullet spread on on uh, Lennon's body, and this kind of mm. implies someone who's very proficient, uh, mm. not just some random guy. Now, mm. it, is this something that you could attribute to some physical 
training in, in Chapman's background? Or, or are we saying that actually he was hypnotising to being a proficient marksman, proficient marksman? I don't think I don't think Chapman's bullets hit John at all, Stephen. I, I think okay. he's throwing blanks. I, you I, just I thrown that blanks. on me two minutes. Two minutes. Yeah, to go, sorry. Right? Yeah, I, I don't think he was shooting. I think he thought he was shooting John, but I think he was firing blanks. I think that I think it was coordinated. I think he was he started to fire just as John is walking in the vegetable doors. That's that much we pretty much know. Uh, I think he was firing blanks. I think he he does have no. Remember, he has no idea what happened to John after he started firing. He, he said John just kind of disappeared. You think he if he hit John four times, John has to be out in the driveway and he has to see what those bullets are doing to John because it's in a chamber. Bang, bang. But you're seeing what your bullets are doing. You're aiming. You're looking at the guy you're hitting. He doesn't remember what his bullets did to John. He doesn't remember what John did after he was hit. So I don't think he actually hit John. I think John was hit when he got in. I think what happened was the second okay. shooter was in the vestibule on the stairway. Once he heard the blanks going off with Chapman, he knew John was coming. And John did, no doubt, jump for that vestibule door the minute he heard gunfire behind him and ran in there pretty quick. But once he's in there, Stephen, he's in a very tight, concealed uh, hallway, stairway area where the vestibule doors are on a closer. The doors behind at the top of the stairs are on a closer. So it's a kind of six-stair, small little hallway stairway some people it's a call it bottleneck isn't it it's a bottleneck where no one can see you and i think that's where the shooter was and i think the shooter walked up to john who was panicking and i think he walked up to him and shot him four times around his heart thinking he was going for his heart and i think john dropped dead right there right there on the stairs which is where the lead detective said he was shot and then the key question then is Stephen, and it really is a key question because all the medical all the doctors and nurses they find it almost comical that there's this story that john ran after he was shot and ended up in the back office. They say, impossible. We saw all his veins around his heart blown away, his subclavian artery blown away. That guy died instantly. Yeah, How did he get in the back office? We just went out of time, unfortunately. Maybe <laughs> in this last minute we've got, you could probably direct people uh, towards where they can find your, your writing and work again and them YouTube videos sure. you mentioned. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, if, if you go to on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, Assassination of Lennon, please go there and look at the videos and images. Um, there's there's lots up there and i explain the videos and i explain the images and, and show people what to look out for um you can find a lot of my work on substack davidwhelan.substack.com uh there's about 25 articles on there in-depth articles about the murder um my book's coming out uh, by the end of the year called mind games assassinator john lennon and please come and follow me on twitter uh, at lennon murder and um you know, I've been doing this for three years now, Stephen, and I didn't go in there with any preconceived ideas. I'm not a massive John Lennon obsessive. I just looked at all the evidence, spoke to everybody involved, look at all the paperwork, and I'm 99% certain now that Mark Chapman didn't shoot John Lennon. And I'm well aware how seismic that statement is. And a lot of people are still, you know, angry that I make that statement. But that's what the evidence shows me. David, it's been a pleasure. It's been fascinating and I'll, I'll keep an eye out for the book and the documentary. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. All the best. You too. Bye. Cheers.